Dr. Dan George reviewed the next set of papers on renal and prostate cancer, beginning with a presentation evaluating overall survival with the use of sunitinib as first-line therapy of renal cell cancer. This was an update of the Phase three registration study of sunitinib versus interferon in the frontline setting for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And in ASCO 2006, it was a plenary session presented by Bob Mozer showing a significant improvement in progression-free survival in favor of sunitinib 11 months versus 5 months for a median improvement in progression-free survival. And so at this year's ASCO, Dr. Figlin presented an update on the survival, overall survival data for this study and essentially was able to show there was an improvement in overall survival by about four and a half months, roughly 23 and a half months versus 18 months for sunitinib over interferon, which was borderline statistical significance, a p-value of 0.051. Recognizing that there was uh, observed crossover, not just to sunitinib, but to other approved TKI inhibitors like Nexavar and other study drugs evolving in the clinical setting, When you take out the patients that were switched over to sunitinib, it actually reached statistical significance. So it suggested that there really is a survival advantage associated with sunitinib therapy in the frontline setting that's really pretty substantial, probably a 25% improvement in survival in this study, even with the crossover. The interesting things here was the survival in the interferon arm, which was much higher than historically we've seen with interferon, which is typically around 12 to 14 months. So an 18 or 19 month improvement in survival was really pretty dramatically improved. And I think if you compare this to patients that, you know, didn't receive any second line therapy or historical controls, it's really a doubling in the overall survival from 14 to what turned out to be about 26 or 28 months. So I think this is validation that progression-free survival is a reasonable surrogate for overall survival in renal cell carcinoma. I think it's a clear validation that these TKI inhibitors are changing the natural history of this disease. I think it still remains to be seen how these results will translate into the adjuvant setting and whether or not we'll actually see these TKI inhibitors improve survival in the adjuvant setting. But I think it's a strong validation for the robust clinical effects we're seeing with these drugs. Let's go on and talk about the update of the Avorin trial looking at bevacizumab. Yeah, so this is another updated result presented at ASCO this year from a previously reported plenary session last year at ASCO of use of Avastin or bevacizumab in combination with interferon versus interferon alone in patients, again, in the frontline setting with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And again, clinically, we saw last year an improvement in progression-free survival from five months to nine and a half to 10 months. This study really looked at subgroup analyses at patients, at some pharmacokinetic analyses, and at some biomarker analyses. And so it was a lot of data really updating some of the correlative pieces that went along with this large phase three study. And essentially, I think that the key findings they found was that, one, patients that received lower doses of interferon, whether that was due to impaired creatinine clearance or toxicity, had really no worse outcome in terms of progression-free survival when combined with bevacizumab than those that received full-dose interferon. And this would suggest that perhaps there isn't a dose-response curve associated with the interferon in that combination. The other, I think, key findings they found was that when they looked at the subgroup analysis, older patients, 65 and older, 
tolerated this therapy with about the same side effect profile as those younger patients. And then when they looked at biomarkers, in particular, they looked at plasma VEGF levels prior to treatment, and that did seem to correlate with prognosis and with outcomes. So patients that had higher plasma VEGF levels to begin with at baseline above the median had a worse overall survival than those with lower levels. And specifically looking at the bevacizumab interferon arm, those with higher levels had a shorter progression-free survival than those with lower levels, suggesting that, again, there may be some limit to the amount of VEGF inhibition associated with bevacizumab, that there is a saturable point here. The other endpoints, the overall response rates and overall survival were updated. There's really no difference yet in overall survival in this study. And again, overall response rates were significantly different in favor of bevacizumab and interferon. The question that it begs is how low can you go? There's no doubt that the bevacizumab is doing a significant portion of the clinical benefit work here. The only question is how much, if anything, is the interferon adding? And I think that's going to be difficult to tease out from this one study. The fact that there is a pretty significant overall response rate of 23% here really suggests that there is some at least additivity. But whether or not that's going to be clinically meaningful in other outcomes like overall survival, I think is going to need to be determined. So I think, you know, the bottom line is we see a significant amount of increased toxicity with a combination over historically what we see with bevacizumab alone and whether or not any, you know, minimal improvement in clinical efficacy is really worth the added toxicity of interferon is the question. At least from these results, you could argue that minimizing the interferon exposure is at least one middle ground you can go to. Whether or not dropping it completely is the same remains to be determined. Now, of course, with all the new data coming out on biologic agents, the natural question has been to combine them, and we're seeing that in a lot of different tumors. There was a presentation, though, looking at a combination of bevacizumab and RAD001, which we just talked about. Can you talk about what they saw there? Yeah, so that was, I think, one of the really hot areas right now is the combination of these two classes of agents. So the idea that targeting the VEGF pathway in some way, whether at the TKI level or with an antibody like bevacizumab against VEGF, combining that with an mTOR inhibitor seems to make a lot of sense for renal cell carcinoma in particular, but maybe other diseases as well, since these two classes of agents seem to both be active in renal cell carcinoma now. You know, with the latest RAD data, we may even say that there's not cross-resistance between the two pathways. So maybe the combination could be really additive together. I think the Sarah Cannon Research Group presented this updated multi-center phase 2 data of bevacizumab with Everolimus RAD001 in patients in either the first-line setting, untreated, or patients that had prior treatment with sunitinib, serafinib, or bevacizumab. And what they were able to show was that patients that had no prior treatment did have a much higher overall objective response rate and partial response rate and a slight improvement in median progression-free survival. But patients with prior treatment did pretty well as well with a smaller but still significant partial response rate and a progression-free survival rate of 11 months, which was really pretty impressive in the second-line setting. So it really suggests that, yeah, there's some additivity here. It's not dramatic. It's not the kind of synergy that we might have hoped for where we'd see a lot of complete responses or really durable responses in the untreated setting. It's maybe a little bit better than either drug alone in the front-line setting, 
But in the second line setting, where we see really much shorter progression-free survival rates and much lower partial response rates, maybe where we see the greatest benefit. So I looked at the data. I think it's positive, but I think it's most impressive in that second line setting in the prior TKI-treated patients. Well, the other thing is I'm hearing a lot about problems with toxicities in some of the combinations that are being done. And I guess here, this combination looked like it was pretty well tolerated. That's right. I think overall, you know, both of these drugs are relatively specific for their target. So bevacizumab really blocks only the VEGFA protein as an antibody. And everolimus really primarily, and as far as we can tell, pretty exclusively blocks the activation of mTOR. There's not a lot of off-target effect of either of these drugs. So when you combine them, you see sort of an additive effect of the two toxicities, but not a synergy. Now, that's very different than, say, when you use a TKI inhibitor like serafinib or sunitinib in combination with an mTOR inhibitor. There, these TKI inhibitors are typically multi-targeted, blocking a number of receptors. And there, the mTOR inhibition is really directly downstream of the TKI receptor inhibition. So you've got much more proximal effect on the inhibition, and I think you get a lot more synergy of toxicity when you do that, particularly the off-target toxicities, things like the hand-foot syndrome, the rashes, fatigue, and some of the cytopenias that you see. What about TKI plus BEV? So TKI plus BEV was also presented at the meeting in a couple of presentations. There was a presentation by the Memorial Group that looked at sunitinib plus bevacizumab, and what they were able to show was that at near full doses, the combination developed a new toxicity, a TTP-type toxicity that was quite severe, and they had much greater malignant hypertension and proteinuria and much earlier onset of those toxicities than what we see with bevacizumab alone, say. So again, it really suggested that there was a synergistic effect on toxicity with a combination of a TKI and Avastin or Bevacizumab. Jeff Sossman from Vanderbilt presented Serafinib plus Bevacizumab, and there, again, they were able to show a lot of efficacy, but difficulty getting anywhere near maximum tolerated doses. So their effective MTD was really at half-dose Bevacizumab and Serafinib. They still saw efficacy, but they still saw quite a bit of hypertension, rash, and hand-foot syndrome, again, really suggesting the more than additive effect of toxicity. So that, too, I think, like mTOR inhibitors, doesn't seem to combine very well with TKIs. Again, just for the community guys, I think that's a word of caution, because I know there's a tendency out there to maybe try some of these combinations as patients get more advanced. And I think just, you know, a word of caution combining TKIs with some of these other targeted strategies. So I want to get a real quick take from you on a few of the posters that were presented. One, looking at sidirinib, an agent, I guess it's an oral VEGF TKI. Yeah, this is an interesting drug. This is a pan-VEGF inhibitor that has really high potency against all three VEGF receptors. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now with these sort of next-generation TKIs, if you will, is sort of two patterns. One, that they're even more potent against the VEGF-targeted receptors that we're really selecting these TKIs for, and that they tend to have maybe a little bit more specificity for those VEGF receptors and less of the kind of off-target effects. So this particular one is primarily focused on VEGF R1, 2, and 3, as well as some CKIT inhibition. And overall, I think the drug showed pretty good tolerance. Interestingly, though, they did have to lower the dose. So They started out at a little bit higher dose and had to come back down. I think they went from 50 down to 25 milligrams on the dose. 
In addition, they saw a lot of efficacy with this, but it wasn't clear from the poster at what dose they saw their efficacy. So they ended up with about a 35% partial response rate and a tumor control rate of 85%, so nearly all patients showing some evidence of response. But again, whether or not this was at a tolerable dose or at a dose that was really too high to tolerate is unclear. The most frequent toxicities were, again, VEGF-related toxicities, things like hypertension and fatigue, and that's primarily why they had to lower the dose. And they did look at some other correlates, but they were really exploratory, like DCE, MRI, and things like that. The real question, Neil, I think for a drug like this is how do you develop it in renal cell carcinoma? So we've already got pretty active TKIs like sunitinib. Now we've got the mTOR inhibitors. We've got bevacizumab showing activity and really good additivity with the mTOR inhibitors. Where do you position the next generation product improvement, if you will, TKI inhibitor? And I think there's two basic strategies that are going forward. There's a phase three strategy going head-to-head against sunitinib, seeing if you can improve upon the progression-free survival rates. And then there's a second-line strategy looking at sunitinib failures and seeing if there's improvement there in that setting. There's another poster looking at the issue of the BEV interferon combination specifically related to older patients in terms of efficacy and safety. Can you talk about what they saw there? Yeah. So, you know, in that poster, they did see overall that, you know, regardless of age, patients tolerated this pretty well, and we did see some good efficacy. So it really suggested that, you know, age doesn't necessarily have to be a limiting factor in terms of who we dose. There was a second abstract on this that was presented with serafinib in this older population. There, too, in their expanded access study, they were able to show that patients over 65 had no greater incidence of toxicities related to serafinib. So it suggests these patients can be treated. The only question we have is how old can you go? Will you see a difference in toxicity for the folks 75 years or older or 80? Where would we see a line? And I think that's one that still remains to be seen. And what's your clinical experience? You know, I do think that as we see patients, particularly over 75, we do see a decreased tolerance, particularly in terms of fatigue and in terms of some of the GI toxicities with the TKIs. With bevacizumab, interestingly, now I don't have experience with bevacizumab interferon, but with bevacizumab alone, even patients into their 80s seem to be tolerating this drug, at least as monotherapy quite well. Let's talk about the report looking at sunitinib in patients with brain mets. Yes. This is one that, to this point in time, there's been very little clinical research. Most patients with brain metastasis have been excluded from treatment on clinical trials with these agents. But in the expanded access study, patients with brain metastasis were allowed on treatment, and so they were followed in this setting. Now, unfortunately, in these expanded access protocols, the primary endpoints are safety and tolerability. So efficacy is really a secondary endpoint. We don't necessarily have great data with tumor response rates in this setting. Nonetheless, when you look at overall progression-free survivals for patients with brain metastasis versus the overall population for the expanded access cohort, there really was no difference in progression-free survival rates, suggesting that the drug does penetrate the brain, that this isn't necessarily a sanctuary, and that these patients with brain metastasis don't necessarily have a more aggressive natural history than patients who don't have brain metastasis. I don't know in terms of, I mean, there was a question about bevacizumab in terms of brain mess that seems to be resolving. Have there been any issues about the TKIs? 
Not really. You know, when you look at these drugs, they have really amazing volume of distribution. I mean, you know, from the yellowing skin that patients see to the periorbital edema or other toxicities, I mean, there's really a lot of penetration of these drugs. And I'm looking at them, there is penetration into the brain. There's certainly CNS-related toxicities, including some of the fatigue as well as some of the nausea and other effects. So clearly there's good tissue penetration. Bevacizumab is a much larger molecule than a small molecule like a TKI. So there is concern about penetration through the blood-brain barrier for an antibody versus a small molecule. Nonetheless, most neuro-oncologists will tell you that there isn't a blood-brain barrier for tumors. So for the most part, I think not so much in terms of prevention of metastasis, but in terms of treatment of metastasis, agents like bevacizumab should still work fine. Let's talk a little bit about prostate cancer, and I want to ask you about, there are a couple of papers looking at the issue of thalidomide in prostate cancer. One, thalidomide versus placebo, and another, a combination study looking at thalidomide, bevacizumab, and docetaxel. Can you talk about those two papers? Yeah, so these are two interesting studies. You know, just when we think a drug has died, you know, it comes back around. And I think thalidomide is one of those drugs that seems to be reborn every few years. In renal cell carcinoma, this was a very active agent for investigation and really off-protocol treatment before we had a number of our VEGF-targeted strategies available. Its use in renal cell carcinoma has really died down, but it's been revisited now in prostate cancer. And this was led primarily by the group at the National Cancer Institute, Bill Figg and William Dehut. And what they did was a couple of different studies. One, they did a rather unique trial design where they looked at intermittent hormonal therapy in randomized patients intermittently, the six months of Lupron followed by placebo or thalidomide, and then at the time of PSA increase, back onto Lupron for six more months, followed again by a randomization to placebo or thalidomide. And it's an interesting trial design and looking to see if an agent like thalidomide that has both putative immune modulatory effects as well as antiangiogenic effects could change the natural progression of disease. And interestingly, they didn't see much change in progression-free survival after the first break from Lupron, but following the second break of Lupron, they saw a very significant change in the progression-free survival associated with patients treated with thalidomide versus placebo. This was not associated with a delay in testosterone recovery. So on one level, you might say, well, maybe thalidomide is slowing the testosterone recovery. That actually didn't happen in either arm. So this is really an independent effect from that and really suggests that perhaps there is a delayed sort of buildup or cumulative effect that is additive with androgen deprivation therapy. Because of the unusual nature of this design, I think it's difficult to know, does this really become a standard of care? We don't really know if intermittent hormonal therapy is really an overall improvement in quality of life or disease control outcomes. So it's difficult to know how to place this study right now. But I think what you can say is that there may be a rationale for combining thalidomide with androgen deprivation therapies in the future, perhaps in combination with radiation therapy in patients with high-risk localized disease or other settings like that. The other approach that they took was to combine it with chemotherapy, and where in the past they've combined with taxotere alone and seen relatively modest efficacy effects, in this case they combined it with taxotere plus bevacizumab. And again, we had talked earlier about how some of these agents can combine with bevacizumab or not. Here's an agent that actually, from a side effect profile, combined pretty well with bevacizumab and docetaxel, 
at their therapeutic doses. So full dose docetaxel and bevacizumab with 200 milligrams daily of thalidomide. And this is again a sort of a single arm phase two study of 60 patients. But the results were very impressive for a single arm study. They found a 90% PSA response rate with a drop of 50% or greater from baseline. 75% of their patients had a greater than 75% drop in PSA. So the vast majority of patients had a dramatic PSA response. Their median treatment was 15 cycles, and they had a 64% partial response rate associated with this. So two CRs and 19 partial responses out of 33 patients. Really dramatic improvement seen. They did a number of some other exploratory surrogate analyses with circulating tumor cells and other things. But, you know, overall, their standard clinical endpoints here, progression-free survival, response rate, and PSA response were all really dramatically better than what we've seen with historical controls. Now, this is a single-arm phase two study and a single center. And so I think that needs to be taken into consideration in terms of extrapolating. But does this sort of triplet, if you will, deserve further investigation into prostate cancer and randomized settings? I think absolutely. What about just the chemo BEV, docetaxel BEV? What do we know about that in prostate cancer? I know there's studies out there looking at that. Yeah, there's an older study that looked actually at a triplet with estromustine, taxotere, bevacizumab that was presented a number of years ago by Joel Pikus that showed about an 80% PSA response rate and around a 45% partial response rate. So again, really good numbers about a 22-month overall median survival in that study. So overall, really good results with that triplet. That led to the CLGB study of docetaxel prednisone versus docetaxel prednisone bevacizumab. And that study has completed accrual now as of December of 2007. We're really waiting on the overall survival data for that study. We're probably not going to see that for a couple more years. So I think right now what we'd say is that there's a lot of phase two data really suggesting an additive effect perhaps synergistic effect with bevacizumab in combination with docetaxel, but the ultimate level one data is probably two years away. The only other really exciting area that was touched upon at the meeting in two different papers is the data around targeting androgen biology, androgen receptor, and prostate cancer in the second-line setting. So there are two studies presented, one by Metivation, which is a new company out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, looking at a novel androgen receptor inhibitor that essentially blocks the binding of the androgen receptor to DNA. And what they were able to show in patients, just their first 30 or so patients, was a dramatic PSA response rate associated with this agent, even in patients with hormone refractory prostate cancer, even many of them chemorefractory prostate cancer. So really suggesting that the androgen receptor is still a very important functional and validated marker and target for therapy in hormone refractory prostate cancer. And then, of course, an update from Cougar Pharmaceuticals on their agent, abiraterone, which is a novel 17 lyase inhibitor to block sort of the steroid production of androgen in all tissues in our bodies, not just our testes. And again, we're able to show really significant efficacy results in patients with prior treated hormone refractory prostate cancer. And that certainly led to an ongoing phase three study now in taxotere-treated patients with abiraterone versus placebo. So I think this is probably the other area of prostate cancer that's likely to lead to some new drug approvals in the next few years, these sort of next-generation androgen receptor or androgen biology-targeted strategies.